This podcast is sponsored by the Music Player Network at musicplayer.com, the premier musician resource for keyboard players and beyond. Since the year 2000, the Music Player Network has been the go-to source for news and views on music technology, playing tips, and gigging help. The Keyboard Corner is one of the longest-running keyboard forums in Internet history, with guitar, bass, drum, and numerous recording and music tech forums also on offer. Frequented by weekend warriors, manufacturers' representatives, and professionals alike, MPN provides an invaluable resource for any musician, and it's 100% free to sign up and use. Go to www.musicplayer.com to see for yourself. Episode 26 of the Keyboard Chronicles, a podcast for keyboard players of the gigging variety. I'm your host, David Holloway, and it's great as always to be here with you. And a huge welcome again to Paul Bindig. Hi, David. Lovely to have you here. And um, we're doing a bit of a first here, Paul. So um, we're, uh, we're talking to a bit of a, an, is it fair to say, icon? I'd argue David's an icon. I would have thought so with the, yeah. uh, the people he's worked with and what he's achieved in his career, for sure. Yeah. So David K. Matthews is who we're talking to. And the reason I say this is a first is this is the first of two parts. So we had such a ball talking to David and his career is so extensive that we decided um, to just keep on talking and uh, come up with two episodes out of it because there literally is so much fascinating stuff there. So um, yeah, David K. Matthews, as you'll hear in both this and the next episode, has played with everyone from Tower of Power and Etta James and Santana. And there's about, I'm looking at the list here, there's literally about another 80 people there, including TV and um, all sorts of genres, just amazing. So yep, in part one, you'll hear the first half or so of David's career and I think you'll enjoy it. Dave, thanks so much for joining us. Um, you're a busy man and we appreciate you taking the time. I'm happy to be here. Uh, thanks um, to both of you for even considering to interview me. And uh, I'm, uh, you know, I've, I've been to, Aust I think my first time to Australia might have been in uh, 2014. I've always wanted to go there. I know a little bit about the history of the country. And I'm happy to um, get my music out there, our music out there into the world and, and certainly, uh, you know, to your lovely, lovely continent there. Yes, we're very, we're very privileged to be here. That, that, that's for certain. Um, now, David, Dave, what we've been asking people for quite a few months now is how they're keeping busy in these challenging times and this challenging year. So, you know, what, what have you been up to the past few months to kick things off? <laughs> well, uh, some light practicing uh, uh, on the piano, mostly um, a little bit of a little bit of recording. I have some recording gear here. I, I'm not really well versed on using it, but I have a lot of keyboards here that I've collected over the last uh, few years. And 
I've done a few uh, overdub sessions for um, for people people that have just uh, been kind of reaching out to me and asking me to play on things. And I I've uh, so I've done a little bit of recording, a little bit of practicing, trying to uh, work on arranging uh, some a little bit of original uh, instrumental music from a couple of good friends of mine. Uh, one who played on uh, my last record, a guy I've worked with for a long time. Uh, and, uh, a lot of, uh, and I plan it starting in the spring, uh, in the middle of March, when our first Santana, uh, European tour was canceled, um, uh, being at home, I have a large yard. And so, uh, in the back, I have a large backyard and, uh, I decided to plant some vegetables. So I've been actually uh, growing vegetables first time. I'm really an amateur, uh, but, uh, I planted a lot of tomatoes, especially, and I had a huge tomato harvest, uh, over, uh, you know, over 15 plants. The tomatoes are finally just giving out right now. It literally, I planted a bunch of heirloom toma- uh, tomato plants and I've literally been harvesting hundreds of tomatoes over the last few months. So I've been gardening some, which is, yeah. Look. I have to say it's, it's, it's good to get out there. You get out in the sunshine, you get a little bit of exercise. I've been swinging a shovel uh moving dirt digging holes watering things and uh eating some nice fresh vegetables too it doesn't get any better than that <laughs> you feel like you're being productive and it's rewarding couldn't couldn't agree more um exactly because you know with the music uh, my our industry is, basically is dead in the water right now is, uh, yeah. with the exception of some online online things that people are doing and uh it's just you know we're the we're the entertainment industry people come to see us perform the con the concert uh performance industry is pretty much dead right now hopefully that will improve later on in the year yeah exactly and just a note to you paul um if we ever start up a keyboard players talk gardening podcast dave's the first guest for episode one yeah absolutely i reckon he'd be excellent actually i have i have to confess dave uh i I did have a, a bit of a stalk of your facebook uh, page so i did see all your your um the fruits of your labors oh. and all the gardening you were doing so um i uh, i would yeah i was actually we were going to ask you about that so i'm glad you brought it up that's excellent <laughs> well i think it uh i think like, like uh, dave said there that um uh, that uh it's it's therapeutic in the sense that it gives you a feeling of uh accomplishing something at a time when maybe you're somewhat isolated at home uh, can't get out so much, can't travel so much. And it's, it's positive. You look, you see things growing, uh, and, um, you know, it's kind of a good feeling. So, uh, it's a pot, it's a positive, And I think, uh, we all need as many positives as we can, uh, rack up uh, these days. Oh, I, I think, I think, uh, to, uh, you know, I imagine for a creative person, um, you know, gardening is, is a very creatively minded endeavor too. I mean, you're literally creating something. So uh, why not? It makes perfect sense to me. Exactly. Yeah. You know, it's growing, uh, growing things, watching them grow. And, uh, uh, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it, it can be, it can be satisfying. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, I've had a couple incidents with gophers, some pests there, uh, eating some of my, uh, vegetables and, and uh, that was a little frustrating. I kind of working around that, and um, you think everything's going so well, and then you're like, "Hey, wait a minute! Uh, there were some plants right now, and now they're 
over there. Now there's just some holes in the ground. And uh, it's also a uh, kind of a reminder that, you know, we're not alone here on the planet. And uh, we're all, you know, there's uh, there's a lot of other creatures that are also trying to um, uh, uh, make their make their lives and livelihoods. And uh, so it's been kind of interesting in that regard, too. Yeah. You know, kind of helps put you back in touch a little bit with the 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 earth it's not just about you know getting in your car and driving somewhere exactly and um you've also probably given us out of this is the 26th episode dave you've probably given us the best ever segue to the question about a potted history of the guests so you know it's it's a great segue from gardening to potted histories so what i'm after <laughs> is is you to just give us a little bit of an insight into your formative years that led you to kicking off a career in music. So we're obviously going to get onto your career, but it's just those formative years okay. that got you into playing. Uh, I was a, um, well, it's, it's, it's kind of funny. Uh, uh, a, a lot of, a lot of, uh, I was adopted uh, as was my brother. Uh, we were brought up uh, in, in the San Francisco Bay area. Um, I was adopted at a young age and this is some stuff that just, just, I know, I've always known that I was adopted. Uh, but in the last about a year, uh, since last Christmas, uh, through, uh, DNA technology and everything, I've been able to, uh, reconnect with, um, or to, to connect for the first time with, uh, members of my biological family that are still living. And I found out mm-hmm. that I'm actually, that I actually have six siblings. Wow. I have, uh, four paternal half i have three paternal half brothers and a paternal half sister of various ages and and then uh two maternal uh half brothers that are just a little younger than me so that's been that, that was that's been kind of shocking that's it's been that's been kind of shocking um and uh mm. uh it's been a very emotional and i I, po- I posted a lot of it on my facebook page if you go back to uh after the new year uh, last year i posted a, a lot of stuff about it and i i don't you know social media for me is generally uh, i mean in this day of age the day and age of sort of medium media whoredom and uh and um uh uh, uh what's the word i'm trying to think of uh, Yeah, titillation and uh, and um, people people just putting everything out there. Social media for me has it. I find it useful in terms of uh, putting music out there and and stuff like that. Uh, as far as so helping my career to a certain extent, and the, and then some and some things about uh, family, family and friends, which really at the end of the day, especially when you get older, I think that you find it. Those are actually a lot uh those those issues are a lot more important than a lot of the material things that uh that people tend to tend to look at so i'm you know i'm kind of going down a a slightly off of the the tangent from where uh your question was but uh my my adopted parents um my dad tom uh and my my mother Dorothy uh, couldn't have children of their own, right? And uh, so, so they uh, 
they adopted my older brother and I. My dad was a uh, World War II combat veteran of the U.S. Army. Worked in con- various uh, construction jobs in the San Francisco Bay Area after World War II. Uh, went to went to UC Berkeley on the GI Bill. Met my mother. They married in uh, maybe 1947 or 1948, uh, and they were they were actually older than uh, a lot of parents of their generation. My dad was already uh, my dad was born in 1924. Okay. Uh, my mother was born in 1928, and I was born in 1959. So my parents, my mother was I think my father was 35, and my mom was 30 when they brought me into the family. Yeah. Um. Uh, I was a little bit of a problematic uh, kid, uh, and uh, in in the sense that you know I was a pretty high strung, high energy, a little bit difficult to handle. Um, and uh, my mother played the piano a little bit, and um, my, my father loved Dixieland and traditional jazz, and uh-huh. um. And so, and there was always music in my house, in our house growing up, whether it was like easy listening radio uh, that you would hear during the day uh, when, when I was home. And we're talking in the early 1960s, like, uh, you know, 1962, 1963, you'd hear anything from Nat King Cole to Perry Como to Frank Sinatra to my dad, like uh, Fats Waller and Jelly Roll Morton. He liked traditional jazz, which was a, a little bit of a, anomaly for he was not a musician and, and it was not particularly musical though he liked to dance a little bit and he liked to have a good time so my parents uh, realized pretty early on that you know i would sing along with the radio and i seemed to be musical and um so when we had an old upright piano in the house that my mom used to play oh just a little bit and so they thought it might be a good idea for me to play a musical instrument. And they asked me uh, if I wanted to, to play the piano and they had one in the house. And, uh, and I said, and I'd already kind of banged on it a little bit. And I said, yeah, sure. So I took piano lessons uh, from about age seven. So uh, maybe age 12 or 13 with a, with a lady teacher that lived locally. Um, and I learned some, I learned to read music, at least the notes, but I didn't mm-hmm. learn that much about reading rhythms uh i learned i learned to read music in an elementary fashion uh not very well but she used flashcards to help me learn the notes uh on the staff um and i learned was able to learn some simple pieces in a simple keys like c or g or something with no black keys or sharps uh you know like a lot of kids took so i took some piano lessons uh and was always interested in music at the, by that point, um, you know, was was hearing a lot of stuff on the radio. My parents thought I might be musical, so I. Uh, by the time I was about twelve, I started. Uh, my parents would go to church sometimes, and so I started uh, meeting other kids that liked to play, and and also maybe just around the neighborhood, um, there were some kids that liked to play music, and so. I got involved in playing in a couple of little little groups, you know, little guy we get together and yeah. play surf tunes or something. It's like a lot of kids. So I got I, I got I had some lessons, learned some simple things, uh, and my teacher discovered that I had perfect pitch, so I was able to hear things easily. 
uh, and, and kind of follow along. And by the time I was 12 or 13, I was jamming with other kids, uh, trying to play songs that were on the radio or, uh, stuff like that. And then it just kind of, when I got into high school, you know, I didn't do very well in school at all. And, uh, so when I got into, when I got into, um, high school, I, um, I played in the, in the, we had a cruddy jazz band at our high school. And I actually, I played trumpet from junior high. I played trumpet for about four years, maybe from about the, uh, sixth grade, uh, through, uh, through my freshman year in, in high school. I only went to high school for two years anyway. So I got involved in music, you know, like my parents put it out there and, um, I got into it and, by the time I was, uh, yeah, 12 or 13, I was really, by the time I was nine or 10, you know, I, I had played some little recitals for a teacher, played some simple classical pieces, heard other piano play pianists, boys and girls playing. And I liked it. I wasn't shy about, uh, performing. I liked music. And, uh, even though I wasn't really that disciplined, um, I seem to have a natural affinity for it. So that's kind of, it's been a, it's been a progression ever since then, uh, you know, <laughs> yeah. uh, 50, mm. you know, you know, I've been playing for, I've been playing the piano now for over 50 years and, um, I'm still just a student for the most part. I'm really kind of working on it, <laughs> trying to get better. <laughs> um, as, as our listeners would have heard from our introduction, you have had a, a, and are still having an exceptionally long and successful career and played with so many amazing artists and it would be really impossible for us to try and encapsulate all of that within the the time that we have available to us in the podcast today dave but i was hoping you could maybe pick say three key career highlights for you so three things out out of all the people that you've worked with out of all the things you've done that that really have stood out as being particularly important to you in your musical journey well that's pretty easy uh i mean um i grew when i growing up in the bay area uh it's a very uh, it's a very eclectic uh radio listening uh situation Mm -hmm. here certainly when i was growing up and um one of the one of the bands that it, it, that I that I heard probably when I was about fifteen, I, uh, so I've been I've been playing in these little uh, you know little rock bands and playing simple songs. But around the age of fifteen, I started kind of getting out of the suburbs and out into the outer lying uh, areas of the Bay Area, and and playing uh, uh, more uh, soul music, more more R and B based music, and uh, playing and starting to get little gigs uh and one of the that that's about the first time i heard tower of power um was uh probably when i was about 15 so which would be uh and actually i saw them play at keysar stadium on a big on a big uh festival bill in i think it was uh must have been around 1975 so i was 15 or 16 yep and and they were there. There was known as a funk band. They're like one of the greatest mm. funk bands of all time. Gotcha. Funk yes, is a yes. funk is a an East Bay funk is what we called in the Bay Area, particularly coming out of the, the Oakland area, the eastern shore of the San Francisco Bay, as opposed to what was happening 
coming out of San Francisco like with Sly and the bands over there, even though I think Sly might have been from Vallejo, but um, originally, but East Bay Funk was kind of a, a uh, it's a it's a, a regional phenomenon, and uh, I first heard T.O.P. in when I was about 15, and I was kind of blown away. The record that I heard was called uh, In the Slot, uh, which is probably, in my opinion, one of the they're one of their most jazzy, jazzy albums. Anyway, uh, that influenced me. Uh, there was a lot of good imp- uh, jazzy improvisation. There was a lot of good funk, a lot of syncopation. He had Chester Thompson, the great Hammond organist, um, who really put his, uh, he was in his prime at that time, and he put his uh, stamp on that band, um, along with the great writing, the great arranging of, of Greg Adams, and, you know, the great playing of, uh, like, saxophonist Lenny Pickett, uh the horn section the five piece horn section you know the the uh the syncopation you know we just lost rocco francis rocco prestia the original uh, and mm-hmm. iconic bass player for the mm-hmm. band um the band's the band's a it's a uh it's a tradition it's a bay area tradition it's also kind of a school just like just like maybe the Art Blakey uh, and the Jazz Messengers or the Horace Silver group in, in the jazz world, uh, T.O.P., there have been a lot of singers over the year. There have been a, a lot of people go through the band. And the, but there's only been about three keyboard players, actually, um, maybe four. And I was, uh, uh, though, there, though Jay Spell did record on a couple of the early records, he was a pianist. Um, uh, that was that was my first national gig. I was 23 when I joined that band. I knew uh, several of the guys in the band because they were acquainted with other musicians that I knew at that time uh, from other bands. So that that would be number one. I'd have to say um, Tower of Power number one because that was my first national and, touring uh, gig. And Dave, do you mind uh, if we delve, delve into yeah. that a little bit? So I'm thinking what we'll do is um, oh, for each sure. of those three, yeah, go a little bit deeper as well. So, um, and so, yeah. Paul, I'll let you jump back in and see. But, I mean, the thing that stands no out problem, for me no problem. is Tower of Power. You're absolutely right. It's an iconic outfit. And what stands out for me is every time you watch a video clip, no matter what the era is, but particularly, those, say, those first 10, 15 years, is the discipline yep. and the the stage craft and let alone the musicianship of it. How, how intimidating did you find it joining those guys and actually doing those first rehearsals? Well, that's the funny thing. Uh, just like, <laughs> just like with the Santana band, I didn't rehearse. Um, <laughs> I, at the time I joined tower of power, I had been, you know, I'd been, I'd grown up and been listening to that. I was 23. So I'd been listening to their music for eight or nine years. Uh, and growing up in the Bay Area, I'd played in other bands where we played some Tower of Power songs. Um, I was uh, I was pretty uh, friendly acquaintances with Doc, Stephen Kupka, mm. one of the two primary songwriters, the baritone sax player, the funky doctor. I because I um, so I, I knew him and I knew Mick Gillette, the lead trumpet player, because those guys would hang out together and come and sit in with a band that I played with at the time uh, when I was uh, 19 and, and 20 uh, that, that um, had members of Elvin Bishop's uh, uh, fool around and fell in love touring band from like 1974, like Elvin's biggest commercial uh, thing. The tower of power horns had 
collaborated, I think, with Elvin on some things. Um, so there was a there was a community of musicians that kind of knew each other, and I was playing with some of those people from the the Elvin Bishop uh, uh, of, the, of that particular time of the Elvin Bishop uh, um, uh, family, you could say. That's how I got to know some of the T.O.P. guys, plus the, the lead alto player, the sax player that had replaced Lenny Pickett, Mark Russo, was a was a friend of mine that I'd known since I was a teenager and had played in bands with him. So joining the band, I knew three or four of the guys already. Um, and I wasn't intimidated. I was excited, and it was a good fit for me, but in joining the band, I mean, you know, idolizing Chester Thompson as a, as a Hammond B3 player. Um, I was very conscious that, that I, and he, when he left the band, he was 37 or 38 years old and really at the, uh, really at the top of his game. I was very conscious when I joined the band that, um, that I had some big shoes to fill in that regard. And I, I mean, I had some different musicals for perspectives that he, did that he had so i felt good about that but at the same time i um joining the band i mean i'd played hammond organ and some funk bands but you know i didn't play bass pedals and not that that was something that was really necessary for me to do with tower of power but i wanted to do it because mm. i wanted to do it because i was so uh such a i'm such a fan of ct and he's a friend i'm i'm happy to say uh so there were times in the first year and a half i mean i peep some uh other musical friends have told me that they like the fact that i really tried to evoke um the chester thompson uh vibe in terms of uh, what i tried to play i tried to copy things that he had done on the albums but i mean as an improviser i'm 23 years old i wasn't a jazz player at that time i i loved i was interested in jazz but i didn't really you know, CT was a legitimate jazz organist, one of the best, actually. And um, so I was, I became conscious uh, pretty soon that you know, even though I was fitting in with the band on a in a in a funky context and could contribute some good things, I wasn't an improviser. In my opinion, really, CT was really the best, uh, if you want to say, quote unquote, jazz improviser in the band at that time i think that lenny pickett and, and chester were the really the main uh soloists the, the best soloists in the band bruce conti also played some jazz influenced kinds of things and some bluesy things and it's a good improviser too but um so i pretty soon you know by the time i was 24 or so uh, i was like saying to myself well you, you know i i'm trying to I'm trying to be as good as CT, but I'm just not. And, uh, I've got a lot, I got a lot of work to do. And that was a motive. It was motivating for me because that was the first band to where, um, I was playing on a national stage, going to New York, playing at the bottom line, having, uh, having well, you know, having well-known musicians sit in with us, whether it was Will Lee or Hiram Bullock from the Letterman band or Paul Schaefer or, or um going going out to, i'd go out to the blue note and listen to people like joey calderazzo and nils van Doki and you know really good jazz piano players and i was realizing i was going man i got a lot of 
I've got a nice gig here and it's cool, but I got a lot of shit to learn. So that's kind of, that's, I wasn't intimidated by the gig, but after getting the gig, it just made me want to get that much better because uh, you never know who you might, you might end up playing with Bernard Purdy one night, or you might end up playing with Cornell Dupree or, um, uh, Delbert McClinton might come sit in or, or Phoebe snow might come in and sit in with the band or John Sebastian, you know, and you just wanted to, you just wanted to be the best player that you could be. And, and the other thing too, is that I was 23, 24 years old and the majority of the band were in their early to mid thirties. And most of them, um, at that time had drug and alcohol problems. Mm. And I, at that time I drank, but I had, I had quit, uh, doing when I found out I was going to be a father back in, in, uh, 1982, I had quit, uh, drugs, cocaine, uh, LST pills, marijuana. I had quit all that stuff, cold Turkey. And, and the guys in that band at that time, most of them had problems. And, and, um, so I was coming from a perspective of a, a younger, hungry musician playing with some legendary guys, uh, that were struggling to, um, that were sh- sometimes struggling and it was, uh, um, it was a, uh, uh, you know, I was the youngest guy in the band, like, like most of the bands that I had been in up to that point. Now it's not the case anymore, but for a lot of my career, I was the youngest person in the band. Of course, now I'm 61. So it's not, uh, that's not really, <laughs> it's a that's not really the case change. anymore. <laughs> Yeah. Just just from yeah. a, from a from an outsider's perspective, uh, Dave, watching Tower of Power, it, it appears the impression you get is, is you need to be you know very very disciplined to uh, to to play that gig and, and do what's required. But but I'm also really interested. Was it was it also sort of fun and loose as well when it needed to be? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, Tower was influenced by you know it's it's a soul band it's a soul band. It's a funk band. It's a, mm-hmm. they're innovators in the funk in, in the creation of funk music. At the same time, there were a lot of influences there that maybe even at the time I wasn't necessarily aware of. And, you know, influences on people like David Garibaldi or, or, or Rocco or, or Doc and Mimi or yeah. Bruce, uh, influences as diverse as, um, and particularly for the style of funk that they, they, they created. Uh, influences um certainly I, I, on bruce i'd say uh influences like bobby womack in terms of his guitar playing soul music in general certainly james brown uh on the tower as 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 a whole uh the meters out of um you know the meters out of out of uh, new orleans uh bernard purdy and and chuck rainey and the uh and the uh rhythms you know the that rhythm section um uh, I know that Rocco talked about the influences of James Jameson and, and Gerald Jamat, uh, Jerry Jamat, particularly who also played with Aretha. Um, and, uh, they practiced, they, they did a lot. They did a lot of rehearsals together. Like certainly before I joined the band, they wrote songs, they worked on their craft. They played numerous gigs and you know they had fun and they were also getting high like crazy but um <laughs> but yeah they had fun and then and they developed a really uh original 
really a very original thing. TOPs, uh, it's come and gone maybe two, 52 or 53 years now. It's, a, it's an institution. Uh, proud to have been there for like two and a half years. <laughs> yeah. I was uh, n- not really in over my head necessarily, but um, it was, uh, I got, you know, the band wasn't making a lot of money. Uh, they didn't have a record deal at that time. And the gig started paying less and less. And they, Emilio decided to cut the band down because he, he got another lead vocalist. He had a lead vocalist, Ellis Hall, who uh, played keyboards. And instead of carrying a B3 and a Fender Rose and a Spark string ensemble and a clavinet and synthesizers in the truck, he, uh, they could have Ellis sing and uh, play his little Casio keyboard. Uh, <laughs> and that's kind of all they needed. I mean, he's a great singer and he good keyboard player, also a great bass player and, and guitarist and drummer too. He's like another Stevie Wonder. Uh, so I got cut uh, economically. It was like, you know, we don't, we don't really need to carry this keyboard player, all this guy, all this stuff. We've got this guy who sings and plays keyboards and we can all make a little more money. So at age 25, uh, or I might've been 26, I got, I got let go from the van and I wasn't uh, hurt or upset by it. I just was like, well, okay, that's over. And now I got to try to find uh, some other things uh you know to do which is a great and keep getting better yeah it's a great perspective too dave um and and so obviously i mean when that was over what was as i said we can't uh, sadly talk about the whole career so what was another key the second key highlight for you post tower of power well actually it's kind of interesting because i'd have to say that um it would be i'm not going to say a band uh, necessarily because, um, there was a club in Berkeley, uh, California, about one block South of, of, of the UC Berkeley campus called Larry Blake's Rathskeller. And, um, Larry Blake's Rathskeller was a, you know, it was a college hangout, a UC Berkeley hangout. And, um, it was a legitimate blues club. I've, I've been playing blues, you know, I mean, real, real blues, uh, probably since about age 19 or 20, uh, along with playing funk and R&B and Afro-Cuban and, and Latin jazz music, kind of all concurrently. And uh, and so well, what happened is playing Larry Blakes, there was, the guy who ran the music there, who put the music together, was a, a guitarist named Tim Kahatsu. He passed away in 2014. He was a dear, dear friend of mine. Um, and... He was a blues guitarist, but also he could also play a variety of other styles. And he uh, he um, he kind of got his start uh, uh, playing. Well, he actually he played with played rhythm guitar on a couple of early Buddy Guy albums, and he played uh, he played with Charlie Musselwhite in the uh, in the late '60s, actually. Um, and he he. Uh, he put together the, a music uh, a music calendar down here at, at Larry Blake's uh, that that there was music uh, seven nights a week. Um, j- local jazz uh, artists played at Larry Blake's. Local Afro-Cuban and, and Latin jazz and Brazilian uh, musicians played there, and a lot of blues acts played there. Etta James played there. Uh, Otis Rush played there. Uh, Tracy Nelson played there. Um, let me think of some other. Uh, 
I'm trying to think of a God. I'd have to, I'd have to go look at the list of, but anyway, I, I'd been playing with Tim since I was about 19. I met him when I was about 19 or 20. So playing at Larry Blake's, not only did I play a lot of blues with a lot of local uh, blues artists uh, and a lot of gigs with him. Also, once again, there were, there were connections to some members of various versions of Elvin Bishop's bands. Also uh, versions of Charlie, Charlie Musselwhite's early bands. Also, uh, um, also, um, uh, Pete Escovito, who I just played with the other night, Pete, his daughter, Sheila, Sheila E, the Escovito family, which is kind of, they're the kind of the Bay Area Latin jazz, uh, equivalents to maybe the Brubeck family okay. or possibly the, um, or possibly the, uh, uh, the Petersons, uh, the Peterson family from, uh, uh, Minneapolis. Mm. Um, and they were, uh, you know, uh, Pete had played with Santana. Sheila had played with Santana over the, uh, played with her. She was a high, uh, high end, uh, session after playing a Latin jazz, a Latin session, uh, player playing with Herbie Hancock, people like that. So this club, uh, Larry Blake's, not only would you run into people like from the tower of power band, uh, you'd, you'd, you'd run into, um, various blues artists. You run into very, ja various jazz artists. It was kind of a Mecca. Of stuff, uh, yeah. very various Latin, Latin uh, jazz thing. I, I would have to say that playing with, I'd, I I kind of have to make it kind of a dual thing. Playing it, it was called the Rat Band, R A T, okay. the, which is short for the Rat Skeller. Playing with the Rat Band with Tim Kaihatsu, and at the same time playing with Pete and Sheila Escovito with guitarist Ray Obiedo, we would play also at Larry Blake's occasionally. So it's really kind of two bands from the, uh, from the same period. Yeah. And through the, through the Pete and Sheila, through the Escovito family, I got to know the Bay area Latin and Latin rock and Latin jazz community, which kind of led me to Santana, uh, all these years later, um, through those connections. But I also got to know a lot of the, um, the Bay area blues, and R&B community uh, through Larry Blake's Rathskeller uh, in Berkeley, which closed maybe five years ago. Okay. And so that would be the second. That would, the second. Uh, I, so it's really two two uh, groups of two different discrete groups of musicians in one. But as typical in the Bay Area, things tended to inter uh, interreact and yes. intertwine. And what what did you feel you learned? I mean, you you obviously had a, a even though being young had a hell of a lot of experience under your belt. By the time you you commenced this phase, what what you, what are the big learnings you got out of that period? Well, uh, how to really play the blues uh, and mm -hmm. play with harmonica players, play with harmonica players, play with a variety of guitar uh, players of different styles. I I learned that the blues is not the blues is not just BB um, King, or I mean, the blues is a whole range of. Uh, I mean, we could we could go back to uh, Louis Armstrong and New Orleans or whatever, uh, and and other things. But I mean, the blues, the quote unquote blues style, as as people when they think of the blues, whether they think of Buddy Guy or Stevie Ray Vaughan or BB King or, or Bobby Bland or John Lee Hooker or whatever, the blues is all of those things. Um, but the blues is 
has a is a is just as wide ranging as jazz is in the sense that the blues can can be from a really primitive uh, southern delta styles with slide guitar and maybe harmonica and no bass or maybe no drums it could be it could be uh you know it can run the the range from something like uh lead you know huddy Ledbetter or lead belly or 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 lightning hopkins or 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 john lee hooker or um or you know heading from the south into into texas you know it it could be you know you, you could you, i mean you could get into early modern uh more urban blue you know you can get into chicago you can get into new orleans i mean the mm-hmm. blues has been certainly you know jelly roll morton was playing and writing blues songs uh in in the early 1900s they can go all the way you know you've got blues in new orleans whether it's uh professor longhair and and the the styles from that city and i'm talking about piano now but you can get into texas you can get into t-bone walker you can get into more urban styles you can get into bobby bland uh bb uh, it's there's um uh it's african american music which is one of our greatest one of our greatest cultural uh legacies in this, in this country whether it be jazz or blues but what i learned about playing uh that was i learned that the blues is an incredibly wide and disparate uh, um, genre, if you want to use the word genre. And the same thing I learned about Afro-Cuban and, uh, and, and quote unquote Latin music. What you've got Brazilian music, you've got, yeah. you've got uh, Cuban music, you've got music from Puerto Rico, you've got music from uh, all the Caribbean islands, you've got uh, Calypso, you've got it's uh once again the roots are a lot of the roots are in africa also mixed with some western uh influences as well and so i learned a lot about those things in the bay area is a great place for that because it's a pretty diverse Mm. musical community here and in order to make a living uh, a lot of times musicians have to not necessarily just specialize and play one style you got to be versatile and Fortunately for me, I have an interest in all those kinds of music, so it was uh, it was a fortuitous kind of a thing living in this area because there's a a lot of uh, different uh, uh, inf- diverse influences yeah. that you can l- to listen to, and that's always been my thing. I'm kind of the guy that knows how to play a lot of different styles. I'm, I'm, I have eclectic tastes, and um, and that's actually benefited me uh, throughout oh, my career. Absolutely. And you, <laughs> oh, to, in a quick, uh, to, just to finish this thought, um, it's kind of funny. Like in the Bay Area, there might be a lot of blues gigs, you know, at certain times of the year, and then maybe in the summertime, you know, when the weather would get warm, well, there might be more, there might be more um, Latin gigs. People are outside, you know, people want to dance and everything, and the weather's good. And so consequently, different times of the year, I might be working, I might be studying and practicing uh, harder on one particular style because the majority of the work that I was going to be doing that month would be related to that style, whether it's blues or, 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 or Afro-Cuban music or, or soul or whatever. Like the more gigs you get, 
And, you know, you've got to learn songs. You've got to, you know, you've got to uh, learn the idiom and the, and the things to play. Uh, you know, so you'd spend necessity is the uh, kind of the key there. You know, whatever you need to do to work and play well in that particular musical situation is what you would work on uh, the most at that time. So there's part one done, Paul. And um, as you know, that's just a, a bit of a teaser for the second half. Yeah, look, uh, obviously a, a passionate, eloquent guy, very generous with his thoughts. And, you know, I, I, I got a lot out of that. And uh, looking forward to the next part, which uh, our listeners will be able to hear very soon. I've always wanted to do something that has a to be continued, and, and this is it. So, <laughs> um, so yes, we'll be back uh, again in a fortnight or so with part two. But just a reminder, in the meantime, you can keep in touch via a few means. Uh, our website is www.keyboardchronicles.com. Uh, Facebook is facebook.com forward slash keyboard chronicles. Uh, and we've got good old-fashioned email at editor at keyboardchronicles.com. We do have a Patreon account where if you do want to, uh, for the price of a coffee, help us go from strength to strength, that's at patreon.com forward slash keyboardchronicles as well. So thank you, Paul. We'll be back for part two. And most importantly, thanks to you for listening, and we'll see you back then.